This morning we are diving right back into our study of some persons and personalities who are supposed to, by God's biblical design, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these persons are supposed to affect our spiritual growth. We've been looking at the life of Paul as he wrote Philippians, and we've also been exposed to and experiencing the life of Timothy last week, and now this week Epaphroditus. And just as sort of a background before we go into the text here, I want to just say that these men are examples of spiritual growth, and they are men who were all in for the Christian faith. And I want us to be warned not to put these men on a pedestal. We're supposed to honor them, but not to put them on a pedestal as something that is extraordinary. The, this is normal Christianity that we are being exposed to from Scripture. And it is meant to set the bar high, but it is what we are supposed to, by God's Holy Spirit empowerment, we're supposed to shoot for this. And so I want to just sort of lay that groundwork as we go into the text I was, uh, as I studied about these men, I was reminded just in my own sort of inner promptings of something I read many years ago, and that was a, a book uh, that was called uh, The Spiritual Disciplines of the Church, and it's a book by Don Whitney. He wrote a book on spiritual disciplines, but he also wrote a book specifically targeting what it looks like to be involved in a church at a high level where your spiritual gifts are being used. And he used an illustration that stuck with me where he was comparing the atmosphere of our country as we approached World War II with 25 years later, which was the atmosphere in contrast of our country as we approached the Vietnam War. And both wars had war heroes and veterans who have served, and some of you served in the Vietnam War. And, and so we honor all veterans who served, but there was definitely a, a different tone portrayed in each, at least as this author, Don Whitney, portrays it. He said that on Sunday, December the 7th, 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt said there was a date that will live in infinite infamy um, throughout the the days throughout the history of our country. And that is the day uh, that was at 7.50 in that morning, December 7, 1941, where there was a strike force from the Empire of Japan that was launched in an aerial attack against Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, where a U.S. Pacific fleet went down. Eighteen ships were targeted and were hit, and 200 aircraft were destroyed and damaged. And at least 2,400 Americans died that morning and were killed, and 1,300 were wounded. The Japanese thought themselves brilliant in their tactical assault that morning, and they thought that they had cut out the heart of the United States of America out of the war that was World War II. But instead, there was a reverse effect, as you know. That event actually catapulted uh, our country into a great effort of, of involvement where they wanted to win 
the war. They were somewhat unconcerned as a country trying to stay out of the war, and suddenly, as a unified nation, they were intent on winning the war, and so the recruiting offices in our armed forces were overrun with volunteers. Teenagers were were lying about their age as they went on to be drafted and to enlist, and men were, grown men were crying as they were disqualified from serving because of being unfit because of their physical condition. This author, Don Whitney, had um, a father who was actually one of those men who was medically disqualified as he volunteered to serve in World War II. And so what he did is he moved his family to Arizona so that he could volunteer to crank propellers to start engines on the airfield. There was a, a great sense of urgency to be a part of this war. So by contrast, when the Vietnam War was, was happening and our nation was calling for volunteers, I, I know that historically many volunteered, but there was also a, a sense of draft dodging that was taking place where some people were signing up for college or moving out to not be part of that war effort. People were not clear in our country as to why they were going to Vietnam, and so the volunteership was egregiously poor in comparison to World War II. So to compare this to the church, I want to just sort of package it this way, and it's an oversimplification, but you have people who are more World War II minded in terms of going for it in the church of God, and then you have people who are more atmospherically resistant and almost reluctant in their service in the local church. I've already gone from preaching to meddling at this point, okay? I'm trying to get our attention this morning to say, look, there is a battle that's going on. And we do have stakes in the game. There is a real battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil that's being waged against the church. There are people who hate the truth. There are people who do not like God. There's people who claim to be atheists. And then you ask them about that claim and they say, look, I hate God. Well, I thought you were an atheist. Anyway, but you've got people who are, who are against the gospel, and it is our heart and our desire and our passion to win and to woo and to evangelize the lost, to call people out of the clutches of eternal hell into the glorious light and relationship with Jesus Christ in heaven. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we live the mission in Anchorage. And I want to say that part of that zeal in large measure comes from your desire to be committed in and through a local church. To be involved. To be connected. To not just sign up like you're signing up for an ice cream social. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about involvement where you're part of the army of God and you're together for the gospel. It's that mindset where you get it. You see what's at stake. There's, there's been a clear Pearl Harbor attack that's come against Christ. And you are for Christ. And so you're signed up, enlisted, serving with your spiritual gift to build people up and win people to Christ. That is what the temperature was in these days with Paul, with Timothy, and Epaphroditus. We're going to learn some things about this man, Epaphroditus, and I'm going to read about him now from the pages of Scripture, but I just want to say up front, this is kind of what we get on Epaphroditus. You know, this is what Paul wrote about him, 
There's some comment made in chapter 4 as well, but it's very minimal in, in terms of what's written about this man. But don't just dismiss it and sort of bump over it like, okay, let's, let's get past this and, and move on to some meaty stuff. Understand that Epaphroditus was remarkable, and we learn how remarkable he was because of how he was spoken of. We don't have anything written from him, but we have some real jewels here, some accolades, some affirmations about this man that were written about him. So follow as I read. Verses 25 through 30. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This morning as we look at this text and we've read it, I want to bring some background to bear on what's going on. There is a storyline as you connect the dots, both historically and from what we read about with what Paul is saying about this man. And I want to paint the picture of the story before we go specifically to the exposition from the text. What you have here again is Paul as a minister and an evangelist who's won a church to Christ in Philippi. Philippi is this military city uh, along the um, uh, Aegean Sea, along the Ignatian Way, which is a, a pathway that was created with stones that people walked on from Philippi 800 miles to Rome. And it was this extension of the Roman Empire where this small church had, had grown up under Paul's ministry and his evangelism. Well, Paul, as a missionary, went to Rome. He was sent there through circumstances. Ultimately, he had to testify before Caesar, and his life was on the line. As he was under house arrest, chained to Roman guards continuously, but under house arrest, so he had the freedom to interact with people and write letters and minister from a distance. But distance ministry back then in antiquity was through couriers, through messengers. And so the church at Philippi was eager to connect with their beloved Paul, and they wanted to minister to him and support him, and they wanted to hear from him. And so they as a church got together, and they said, hey, let's send a group of young men probably, probably a band of brothers, and collect a bunch of money and give, let's say, a, a year's wage um, to these men to carry this money 800 miles along the Ignatian Way, kind of above the Mediterranean Sea, bending around down to Rome. And we want to cover Paul's medical expenses, any needs he has, any food, any clothing needs, whatever he needs, we want to cover that because we want our hearts to go through this band of brothers to him so that he's encouraged. That was the plan. 
And so Epaphroditus is mentioned here in this story and probably is either an associate pastor or a significant layperson in the church who's leading this group of men with this money to go see Paul. Now it would have been basically a six-week journey averaging about 15 to 20 miles a day by horseback or walking. And so it was hard traveling and dangerous because they had a lot of money. So you have robbers along the way. So they're, they're going in sort of as warriors along here, but with not re- the real intention that they're going into some physical battle or that Epaphroditus is going to be risking his life. But as the journey went on, this young man, Epaphroditus, fell ill. And back then in ancient days, you didn't have antibiotics. You, you didn't have the walk-in clinics that you could go to or a hospital. When you went to death's door, oftentimes you didn't draw back away from it. So suddenly Epaphroditus, probably a couple weeks into the journey, was faced with a real decision. Do I stop and die where I am? Do I, do I try to journey back home and go be with my family, see family and friends before I die? Do I try to make it back to them? Or do I even go home with the prospects of healing on the beaches of the Aegean Sea? Well... Epaphroditus chose not to do any of those things. Instead, Epaphroditus forged ahead and said, I'm going to lead this group along in the mission and go all the way to Paul. Because, obviously, Epaphroditus saw this as a worthy sacrifice, even sacrificing himself, his comfort, his wellness, being with family, being with friends. He sacrificed all of that for the purpose of this mission. And so he forged ahead, probably because of the correspondence that was happening here that Paul alludes to, probably one or two men from the group went back to Philippi to tell family and friends what was going on. Hey, we tried to convince Epaphroditus to go home. We said we would take it. He was full on committed, going all the way to Paul. He knew what he had to do to lead this um, this journey ahead. And so we're telling you now, family and friends, he's probably not going to come back ever again. He's probably going to die because he is ill, he is sick, and he's giving his last days to this mission instead of coming home. So please pray for him. We're grieving for him. We love him, but he has contracted something perhaps like the Roman fever, which was something that you don't recover from. So that's the scene and the setting as we go to this text. Well, also, we know from the text that Epaphroditus makes it. He delivers the offering, he encourages Paul, and Paul begins to realize that instead of Epaphroditus coming to not only deliver money to him and serve him, now Paul is receiving the money but becomes the servant of Epaphroditus under house arrest. And so he's ministering, no doubt, to Epaphroditus with Timothy there at his deathbed, on his sickbed for maybe a month's time, ministering to him as he's watching his friend and his beloved brother in Christ deteriorate before his eyes. And so Paul is growing closer and closer to this man as he is leaving and expiring from this life. That's the scene. It's a deathbed situation where they perhaps are praying for Epaphroditus' healing. Paul is an apostle laying hands, um, looking for a miracle event to take place, for Epaphroditus to be healed suddenly, and it's not happening, and so they are accepting the fact that Epaphroditus is going to die. And Paul is accepting the fact that this was a sacrificial service to him where he had given his life to build Paul up. Well, 
um, you know, a month passes or so in terms of travel, and, and there's probably a knock at the door, and someone comes from the church at Philippi. Now, I'm just inferring this in terms of how um, Paul would have known that the church at Philippi was grieving over the possible death of Epaphroditus because someone comes in to check on Epaphroditus and check on things. In other words, the band of brothers that split up, two went back or one went back and then someone else came and followed up and made that six-week journey to Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy in Rome to see how it was going. And Epaphroditus was still going down at that point. And Paul is, you know, praying and, and wanting this thing to work out, but is seeing a funeral in, not too, in the not-too-distant future. And I also infer from Paul's pastoral letter and his exhortations that we're going to dig into that Paul is discerning a possible temptation or two that he wants to circumvent. And it would be something like this. Epaphroditus, godly man, signed up, was bringing the money, was leading the charge, was sacrificing himself, but, you know, our expectations of, of things working out better than this have been dashed. And as a church, we thought that Epaphroditus would be this healthy servant to Paul, and here Paul is in prison, he's in a desperate situation, he might die, and we were sending our best to Paul to build Paul up, and instead of um, relieving Paul's burdens, now Epaphroditus is there sick and weak, and he has become a burden to Paul. So there, it, Paul is possibly reading between the lines of this person who's come to check up on the situation because of what the exhortations we're going to see that he writes back. He could be inferring and, and seeing that the church could have some of Job's counselors in the flock back at Philippi where they're going, what sin did Epaphroditus commit that while he was serving on the mission field, it got cut short unexpected, unexpectedly and suddenly? Like John 9, where the Pharisees saw the blind man and said, what sin did he commit or his parents commit that caused his blindness from birth? And Jesus, of course, said, you know, it was, it was blindness to give him glory through the suffering. That's the answer in John 9. Well, Paul wants to circumvent all of this. You ever hear of missionaries that come home early from the field where you're thinking, hey, what went wrong? Why did they have to come off the field sooner than we thought they should? Paul is trying to, to circumvent, to head off at the past these kinds of thoughts and temptations because Epaphroditus was a hero. He was a hero. He was a sacrificial servant for God. And Paul does this by giving five different commendations or affirmations to this Christian man. He's establishing Epaphroditus' character with five affirmations. And it's in the context of a healing. We're going to read about a divine intervention where God actually, suddenly, in the midst of all this drama, you know, that guy or those people who were checking on Epaphroditus, they go back, but so they don't know that Epaphroditus has been healed. But suddenly, one morning, Paul and Timothy look at Epaphroditus and they see the color has come back into his face. Uh, the sweats of infection have dried up and this man is strong again. And the Lord has miraculously, providentially, maybe with use of medicine we don't know, healed this man. So much so that Paul is convinced that his best next move is to send this man that was at death's door back 800 miles to go and be an encouragement to the church. So he was healed. 
But Paul doesn't want Epaphroditus to go into that church situation without some armor on. And so he arms Epaphroditus with affirmations so that he will be received well back at this church. Let's read about this. Verse 25. I've thought it necessary, Paul writes, I've thought it necessary to send you, to you, Epaphroditus, my brother. Stop there. Affirmation number one. This man that's coming back to you, maybe he's coming back sooner than you thought he should, he's my brother. Brotherhood in the faith. This is what is normal for Christians and should be our normal perspective of each other in the flock. There are no cliques in the kingdom of God. We are a brotherhood and a sisterhood. First Timothy 5 talks about treating the younger men in the church as brothers. You don't wait for them to earn your respect. You reach out to them to raise them up in the brethren, the brotherhood. Proverbs talks about this, how a friend in the church sticks closer to you than even a brother. What is this in the Christian life? Brotherhood. Well, Proverbs 18.24 or Hebrews 2.11, Jesus dying for his brothers. Christ was not ashamed to call the believers in the church, his brothers, there's this brotherhood, there's this welcoming brotherly affection in the body of Christ that we should have and we should feel and we should experience. Now, I have a, a blood brother, was raised with a brother who was three and a half years older than me, and for part of my life it was like he was three and a half feet taller than me, so, you know, we had all kinds of uh, um, interesting um, you know, wrestling matches and, and basketball games and all kinds of stuff together. And so, you know, we had a good bonding, you know, relationship together. But he got saved and then later on I got saved and our relationship hit a whole new plane. Our blood brother relationship became fellowship. And suddenly we loved Christ together and it changed the nature of everything. And that's what's happened in Paul's heart with this man. And that's why he uses the word my that my word is a, a word of intimacy, and he's talking that way in terms of these three descriptors. My brother, my fellow worker. Let's stop there. He's talking about how this man's work is worthy. Uh, don't scrutinize this man's mission work because he got sick. Don't say it was undercut. Don't say he was a burden to me. This man got busy. He kept going on the road to Rome. This man was a worker. Christian growth isn't passivism, it's not where we let go and let God, it's, it's diligent work. It takes work to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2 verse 12 in this context, it's work. It's work to get involved. It's work to, to burn the candle at both ends. You say, I'm too busy. Well, the Spirit of God is calling you to use your spiritual gift in the church. Well, I'm too scared to call somebody to come to church. I'm too scared to talk to somebody about Christ. Well, you got to get about the work of the gospel. There's a job that God has called you to do. As our commander-in-chief, as our great shepherd, we're supposed to be part of the work. And Paul was saying, this is an equal of mine. This man is equal to me in the work. He's also my fellow soldier. Fellow soldier. Do you realize, and this picks up on our opening illustration, you're part of the army of God. Second Timothy 2 says, we are athletes, we're farmers, and we're soldiers. 
And I would just say that the sooner you get the soldier mentality and mindset as a Christian, the better off you'll be. Because there are spiritual darts coming your way from Satan himself. Ephesians 6, verse 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against devils and demons. And people who are twisting scripture. People who want moralism instead of Christianity. They want a do-gooder's religion. They don't want Jesus who's holy present. They just want Jesus who is, you know, the great Gandhi in the sky who we're supposed to kind of pattern our lives after. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about pursuing holiness because Jesus is holy. A lot of people don't want to hear that message, but we have to stand for truth as warriors for Christ because we want people to come to know Christ. The armor of God. Philemon, he was called a fellow soldier as well. This is normal Christianity. There aren't the, you know, the kind of passive Christians and then soldiers. No, we're all soldiers. We're all comrades in arms. And I love what um, James Montgomery Boyce said about this. He was talking about how Paul would have looked and seen, you know, himself shackled to a Roman soldier. So he was picking up on this Roman soldier idea. And he was saying, look, the Roman soldiers picture the body of Christ because they were the first who fought shoulder to shoulder with shields raised, walking as a wall towards the enemy as the army of God. He said, shoulder to shoulder, fighting accounted for the success of Rome's armies. Prior to the triumph of Rome, men fought mostly as individuals. They often dressed alike, but they did not fight side by side. The Roman armies did. As a result, the phalanxes of the legions were the terror of the ancient world. The soldiers marched abreast Behind a solid wall of shields, they, as they marched, they struck their shields with their spears in unison and sang battle songs. It's a sort of force of intimidation as you were unified together as the army of God, shoulder to shoulder, in the same mission together. And in the church, if you were together for the gospel, standing in strength, shoulder to shoulder, believing in the mission, we can't fail. We've already been guaranteed the success that was won by Christ at the cross. Well, Paul turns the corner here and changes the perspective just a bit as we look at verse 25 again. Because he's saying, Epaphroditus is my brother. He's my fellow worker and my fellow soldier. And then he changes things to the perspective of the church as the one that they sent. He says, he's your messenger and he's your minister. He's yours. Don't shun this man. Don't undercut his heroism. This guy's a hero. He's your messenger. The word there is apostle, and at some level, Paul is saying, I'm an apostle. This guy is like me. I don't think that Epaphroditus was spiritually gifted as an apostle. He hadn't seen the risen Christ, which was a qualification to be an apostle. Acts 1 talks about that. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. James and the other apostles saw the risen Christ. It was qualifying them in a unique way. There were spiritual gifts that came to apostles. But Epaphroditus was a messenger nevertheless. And the word apostolos means messenger. And he was bringing gifts and he was bringing the message of comfort from this church. And he's your messenger. Do you ever think about that? When you go to somebody that's in need and you build them up and you give them a word of encouragement, you are a minister and a messenger of the gospel. 
You're messaging the gospel to people. You say, how do I serve? How do I get in this army of God? I'm not living in these kind of battle environments. Well, yeah, we are. When you decide to go give somebody a word of encouragement, to serve somebody, to do something that you're not normally comfortable doing, you are acting like Epaphroditus. You are this kind of messenger. You're participating in gospel work which is repeated, that word participation or fellowship, it's six times repeated in this epistle. And at the end of the epistle, in Philippians 4, there's the ministry of this gift that Epaphroditus gave Paul, and that is this kind of work. And it's picked up in this last commendation, this affirmation, he's your minister. That word minister has some significance to it in the original language. It is the word given to priests that would go into um, temple worship. And basically what Paul is doing is he's saying, this missionary that came and, and ministered to me the gift of money was coming like a priest serving God with a sacrifice. He's a minister, liturgio, you hear that word liturgy in that. There's this temple service or priesthood idea connected to Epaphroditus. It was used of the priesthood in Hebrews 8.2. Paul, when he would win Gentiles to Christ, he would offer these Gentiles up to God, and he used that same word of service in this context in Romans 15.16. Paul said he was a minister in priestly service, speaking of himself. He said, I'm a minister in priestly service of the gospel, offering Gentiles acceptable to God by the Holy Spirit. So every time Paul won somebody to Christ, it was like he was a priest offering them up to God. And in the same way, he's saying Epaphroditus, when he brought this money, you say, look, you know, how significant is that? You know, he went on a journey, he got sick, and he kept going. It was very significant. It was being a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and, and be a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God. That's what Epaphroditus was. You know, worship is so much more than just coming together and singing. It's wonderful. It's part of the design of the church to sing together. It's part of the design of the church to give together. It's part of the design of the church to communicate with each other in public ways, in public settings. But worship is all of life. It's being a living sacrifice. You know, there's high church, there's casual church, but, but to be part of the body of Christ is to think of yourself as a living sacrifice. Every time you counsel your teenager, every time you discipline a child, every time you, you manage your household, every time you shepherd your wife or your wife is influencing the husband, every time you evangelize somebody, every time you live as Christ, that is spiritual worship to God. It is. You've got, you got to sort of see this as normal Christianity. It is. We're worshipers of God, whether you're worshiping publicly or privately. Well, how does Paul prove that all these things were so in Epaphroditus' life? Well, look at the, the next several verses and the way Paul spoke of him. This verse is 26 through 30. He, he proves these affirmations with what he says about him. First of all, he says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. It's verse 26. Paul's proof of these five 
affirmations. You know, before we go into that, I, I want to go back to something that I skipped and I, I don't want to miss it. Turn over to Philippians 4, just real quick. Picking back up on the worship idea. Look at verse 15 and following. This is where Paul gave the money, I mean where Epaphrodite gave the money to Paul. Look at this. He says, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, that's Philippi, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Skip down to verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And I have received, look at this, full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Look how he characterizes giving here. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. There's a reason I don't want to skip this. I just want to show you from Scripture that when you give money or you give your time or your talent, when you, when you give self-sacrificially to people, that is the New Testament form of temple worship. Do you understand that? When you give on a Sunday morning, or you give online, when you write a check, you need to think, I'm not just helping the economy of this local church. Don't think that way. Think, I am giving a self-sacrificial gift to my God that I love. That's the heart of giving. And God breathes that in spiritually and receives it unto himself and blesses accordingly in your life and in the life of the church. That's giving. That's what Epaphroditus was facilitating, and that's life worship. All right, now, back to, back to the text. Verses, again, 26 through 30, explain why Paul could give these commendations. First of all, number one, Epaphroditus was compassionate for others, for the sake of others. He says, for he has lo been longing for you all and has been distressed. This longing is the same word that Paul used in Philippians 1.8. Paul was yearning for the church while Epaphroditus was yearning back for the church because he knew that they knew he was going to probably die. This is the compassion of the person who's going to, you know, has a terminal disease or an illness where they're probably not going to make it out of the operating room and they're being wheeled back and looking back at the family member's eyes in the waiting room and instead of them being concerned for themselves, they are concerned for their family because they know that the real pain and suffering is going to go on as they wait this out over a surgery that's probably not going to go well. That's the same kind of compassion and emotion that Epaphroditus was going through. And you say, well, you've seen people in those hospital room situations, right? And you've seen how their heart turns from inward to outward, right, in the body of Christ. That's what Epaphroditus did, and that's normal for Christians to do. Just caring for other people. Normal Christianity. He was longing for them. He has been distressed. Distress is the same word used of Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane where he's with Peter, James, and John. In Mark chapter 14, 33, Jesus said, My soul was greatly distressed. His soul was distressed. His soul was sorrowful even unto death. So the same anguish of soul that Christ had in Gethsemane, this is what Epaphroditus was going through on their behalf. Next, Epaphroditus was a risk taker for the sake of Christ's mission. Now I want to skip down to verse 30 and then backfill it 
with verses 27 and following. Epaphroditus, it says he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Now, what I want to do is just clarify a couple things. Number one, Epaphroditus did not go on the mission thinking that he was going to die. Christianity is not um, sort of multi-tier levels of spirituality where you go, you know, I'm really spiritual because I'm going to put myself in harm's way where I could die for the gospel. That is not warranted as spirituality or Christian growth. The reason Epaphroditus is commended as a fellow soldier for the gospel is it comes down to your mindset, and his mindset was Christ-centered. In other words, as Epaphroditus was on the mission, he did get sick and nearly died, but Epaphroditus' mindset over that is what was the example of Christian growth. He was able to say, look, of course I made myself vulnerable for the gospel. I didn't know I was going to get sick, but I did get sick. And there's a sense of Epaphroditus being well contented to sacrifice himself in this way for the sake of the gospel, as a soldier would who was wounded in battle. Soldiers don't go into battle to be wounded, but when you go into battle, sometimes that happens. And Epaphroditus was retrofitting the wounded soldier idea onto himself and saying, I was wounded for the gospel. He risked his life. He didn't go into this journey thinking I'm risking my life, but the circumstances turned out that way, and so he retrofitted that thinking saying, you know what? I was risking my life. I was willing to press on through the situation because I had this warrior mindset. To risk is um, a word that was used in extra biblical literature here as gambling. It's the idea of gambling. He, it's the idea of a stake in the game or the idea of putting money in a court case for someone to defend you that you could lose if you lose the court case. That's a stake. And it was the idea that he, he put his stakes in the game and said, I'm going for it in the gospel. You know, there are times, men and women, where you don't have extra money to give to missions. You don't have, have extra time to give to gospel work. You don't have extra money to give. And you don't have energy to give. But you know what? You do it anyway. Why? Because there's a, there's a gospel mindset that you're thinking your life through. And you realize that you, as, and I'm borrowing this from John Piper, you don't want to waste your life. You want, at the end of the day, to see fruit spiritual fruit in your life, in your family's life, in your friend's life. And so you give towards that in effort and tangible gifts. You do because you're gospel-minded. And Paul's just commending this mindset. Epaphroditus had it. Well, back up, back up to verse 27. He did risk his life. God had mercy on him. It says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. God intervened. You know, Epaphroditus, maybe he was saying, I'm ready to go to heaven. You know, to live as Christ and to die as gain. That's what Paul's been telling me. I'm ready to go. But you know what? There is mercy when God delivers you from illness, isn't there? I mean, sometimes I think we get in these super spiritual mindsets where we think, you know, it's, it, it would be wrong for me to want to be healed. But no, God holds all of life in his hands, right? In him we live and move and have our being, is what Paul said on Mars Hill in Acts 17. God is the creator of all of us. He, he is the creator and he's the sustainer. 
He knit us in our mother's womb. He loves us. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. He knows when you're going to die. He's appointed that time. And so when it's not that time and we have more life on this earth, then we need to rejoice and say, God, thank you for my life. Now let me give it more to you here on earth. That's what was going on in Epaphroditus' heart. He saw his healing as the mercy of God. And Paul also saw it as a deliverance of anguish for his own soul because he said not only on him but also on me lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow lest I should have one grief heaped up on another grief and another grief Paul's going look Epaphroditus made it he was delivered he got strong again and so my heart is encouraged and I'm strong again in essence what Paul is saying here is the joy he's experienced from Epaphroditus being healed is so overwhelming and is so encouraging that he is willing to send his best friend, one of his best friends, away from him, out of prison. Hey, go back to your home church because I've been so encouraged to find out that you're healed. I want them to be encouraged to see that you're healed. I mean, that that word see is actually in the text. He wanted them to see Epaphroditus again, that he's healed. I want to send him my brother, back to you. He was near to death. God had, verse 27, mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. There's that word. And that I may be less anxious. Paul's saying, look, I'm burdened because I know that you guys are still burdened as a church, believing Epaphroditus is dead or almost dead. But he's not dead. He's, in essence, come back to life. There's almost a picture of the gospel here, you know. Uh, what did Epaphroditus do? He risked his life. He, he gave his life like Christ. He's giving himself. He didn't have to die, but he gave himself to the mission just like Christ did. But then instead of dying, he was raised back up. Now, he didn't die, but he gave himself. In gospel work, you know, Christ said, look, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Be willing to lose your life for Christ. That is gospel-mindedness. If you want to grow, you got to start taking these testimonies and passages to heart. You won't necessarily find yourselves in these circumstances or these situations. You may, but you, you might just... You know, have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit, but it takes this level of accountability and this level of of exhortation for us to go for it for God. It's a risk taker. You know, Romans 8.32 says that God did not spare his own son. Epaphroditus was spared, but Christ was not spared. He actually died. But he died so that Epaphroditus could live a radical Christian life. We need to think in those gospel terms. Paul was wearing his emotions on his sleeve in verse 27, saying he was going to cry and have sorrow upon sorrow. He was delivered from that. Paul wasn't a stoic. He was less anxious by sending Epaphroditus away. And then he called the church to receive Epaphroditus with joy. You know, Jesus was a man of sorrows. Paul was a man of sorrows like Christ, but he was also a man who called the church to rejoice. Hey, don't be critical of this man. You need to receive this man 
in the Lord with joy. You know, I want to pick up on that in verse 29 for just a moment. There is something that you and I are called to do as Christians, and that is to receive other people. Remember, this church could have been critical of Epaphroditus, this missionary whose mission and ministry was cut short, and they were being called to receive him, to think about Epaphroditus the right way. A lot of times, we are comfortable with certain people, with certain personalities, with certain cliques and certain groups and demographics, and we shun other people. You say, I'd never do that. Well, you know what? We need to search our own hearts. When you are gospel-minded and you are seeing people in terms of the Lord, you're more receptive to people. There's a warmth, there's a welcomeness, there's an invitation to people that aren't like you. We need to receive people. How do you get there? Well, you get there in your heart by saying, you know what, I was a sin-sick, shriveled-up soul antagonist to God. I was reprobate. I was against God. I was anti-Christ, and God changed my heart and received me. You know, a lot of times there's language, and there's scriptural language, about receiving the Lord, accepting the Lord. Do you realize that God first accepted you before he softened your heart so that you would receive him? He received you to himself. It's the prodigal father running to receive the son. There's a receptivity there, and that should break our hearts to receive others in the Lord and not do it begrudgingly, but do it with joy. And it says to honor such men. This man was um, a warrior coming off the field who had sacrificed himself for the gospel. And he did it not just for Paul. He did it for the Philippian church. Did Did you catch that? As he kept going in selflessness, he kept going on behalf of the church. And so Paul is picking up on that, saying, look, receive your minister, your messenger back. Because he did it for you. We see this in verse 30. He was a worshiper by serving his friend. It says, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I pick up on this word worship and worshiper again because that word service is that same word as minister up in verse 25. It's that liturgio word. word. It's the idea that, that Epaphroditus worshipped God by serving on behalf of the church. And Paul isn't being harsh here. He's not saying, look, you know, what you couldn't pull off, he did. And, you know, I'm kind of indicting you and guilt-tripping you to receive Epaphroditus back. That's not really what the language is saying. It's the idea of, of Epaphroditus was literally filling up what the church had sent him to do. He completed the mission. He filled up and proxied for this church what the church was unable to do. He went for them, on behalf of them, to worship God in service to Paul. You know, they say, again, a picture is worth a thousand words. We've looked at this cameo sketch of Epaphroditus, and he's a picture of a brother in Christ. He's a picture of a fellow worker for Christ. He's a picture of a man who was a warrior or soldier for God. He's a picture of being a messenger of the gospel. He's a picture of being a minister of the gospel as a self-sacrificial servant. Does that picture affect your life? It should. We need to be these things in the normal Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and your word and truth. We thank you for the fact that we can learn of this man. But as we learn about Epaphroditus, we're really learning about the work of Jesus Christ in the life of a Christian. God, help us to grow in grace and help us to be more like Jesus Christ. He is our hero. He is the one who paid the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And we've been delivered because of him. And so God, inspire us this week to go for it in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to just say stick around.